This is Quack Talks, a podcast about voices and vocal health for singers, actors, vocal performers, fitness instructors, really anyone who uses or loves the voice. I'm Paul Quack. I'm a laryngologist and laryngeal surgeon in New York City, and I spend my days taking care of and thinking about voices and the human beings who use and inhabit them. This podcast is designed to empower vocal athletes with knowledge through conversations with some of my most brilliant colleagues who are experts in topics on vocal health. My guest for this episode is Dr. Nathaniel Horn. He is an allergist and the clinical director of outpatient allergy at NYU Langone Health. You will probably not be surprised to know that Dr. Horn and I have many mutual patients as often ENTs and allergists do because so many symptoms of allergy manifest in the nose and throat. I get a fair number of questions from patients about many common topics in allergy, so this was a great opportunity to get to discuss these things with a real live expert allergist. This episode is information rich. We talk about seasonal versus perennial allergies. We talk about allergy testing, how it's done and what it means, and then all of the meds all of the medications, antihistamines, nasal sprays, etc. We recorded this episode at the Center for Men's Health of NYU Langone Health on Madison Avenue in New York City after a busy day of seeing patients. I hope it gives you some good fundamental knowledge about allergies and how we treat them. I'm delighted to have my colleague, Dr. Nathaniel Horn, here with us uh, because I think that there is a lot of perhaps misinformation, misconceptions, a lot of kind of anxiety even around the topic of allergies. Welcome. Thanks for being here and just tell everyone who you are. All right. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Um, Yeah, I'm Dr. Nathaniel Horn. I'm an associate professor at NYU. I'm the director of ambulatory allergy for NYU. And um, I've been a practicing allergist for over 15 years. Wow. So you started when you were like 10. (laughs) <laughs> you can't see Dr. Horn, but so youthful. Okay, well, so clearly all you do every day is see patients who are having issues or who think they're having issues with allergies. That's right. Was this a bad year? I mean, you know, it just seemed like everyone came in and said, like, my allergies are terrible this year. Was it a bad year? What, what does that mean? Well, I mean, overall... There is a trend towards um, earlier date of first pollination with warmer weather um, mm. overall. So peer review data has show that the date of first pollination for most trees has moved up by over two weeks. And that was, I read that paper maybe 10 years ago and it's probably continued wow. to advance. And now we're getting patients who used to come up with symptoms only in May are coming in and like maybe like even like late February in some years. Wow. So earlier symptoms in, in, as far as seasonal um, allergens go, um, also a lot of um, pollinating plants um, love carbon dioxide and there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So so some plants, particularly the one that's been most studied is ragweed, produces more robust cross of pollen with more carbon dioxide. So there's tendency towards worse seasons as time goes on. That being said, you know, you and I see patients who are having bad symptoms. Yeah. So we have yeah. selection bias. Sure. So every year I've been in practice for the last 15 years has been the worst year yeah. for the patients that I see. That is fascinating though. I didn't, re- and is that, am I interpreting correctly like that reflects climate change? Is that 
Well, that's the presumption, yeah, that climate change is driving a lot of these wow. sort of worsening climate events, you know, and then sure, you know, you know, overall, if you were to look at, you know, absolute pollen levels from year to year, you know, some years are going to be worse than, than others, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's very, you know, hit and miss for a given patient, whether or not that's going to be a bad year for them. But again, those are going to be the patients that you and I see in practice. Yeah. The ones that are really suffering. Totally. Now it seems just for everyone to sort of get on the same page. Pollen is during the warm seasons, right? So like, what's the average kind of trajectory in the year for, for, for pollen and what, when are they, I, I was actually tested on this for my boards, but I don't remember. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there's two main categories of, you know, airborne or environmental allergens. Um, it's what I would call them. There's the perennial allergens, you know, like cat, dog, yeah. dust, mold to a certain extent, although mold can have seasonal variations. And those are going to be generally present year round. Um, and then we have the seasonal allergens, which are generally pollens, right? So that's going to be, um, springtime is going to be mostly tree pollens. You know, the most, two most notorious pollens are going to be there, birch and oak probably. Mm. Um, and, uh, then transitioning late, late May, um, you start getting the grasses mm -hmm. and grass season sort of like through. September-ish, um, and um, we start seeing the weeds sort of like mm, July, but really a peak of the bad weeds, yeah. like ragweed and mugwort, yeah, yeah. more like September, October, and even into like November. Interesting. Yeah. So, so oh, sorry, just to summarize. Yeah, yeah. Tree of spring, summer grass, weeds fall. Yeah, okay. And people tend to have well, I don't know what, what's your experience and what, what do you notice about like the people think that one people kind of get the spring allergies or in the fall or like, are people sort of afflicted year round? It's really all over the place. I mean, from, you know, varies from patient to patient, some patients will be like just what one or two trees and just have springtime symptoms or like two weeks of like bad symptoms and then the rest of the year they're perfect. Mm -hmm. And then you get other patients where it's like you know, multiple trees, multiple grasses, multiple weeds, multiple year round sensitivities. I would say the one thing that tends to be less common than is thought is mold allergy. It's actually mm -hmm. kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but, um, and a lot of people think they have mold allergy, but I mean, definitely it exists and we do, I do see a lot of it, but it's just less common. Yeah. And I think is interesting. Thought. So with that being said, I'd love to sort of, sort of chat with you about like how allergies affect like a singing and a speaking voice. Because I tend to notice that people who have allergies, it's it's a lot of nose. It's a lot of nose, eyes, ocular, and sometimes post-nasal drip. We can talk about post-nasal drip and like what that means and how people experience it. But I tend to tell people that it doesn't, I don't, like, for example, when people are having bad allergies, like when I look at their vocal cords, I don't tend to notice like hugely swollen vocal cords. I don't see a lot in the larynx. Is it? Is that, do you find that to be true that a lot of it is kind of upper face nose or it's kind of your I clinical? I think so. I mean, you, you know, you have a lot more experience with the sort of the performing arts of the voice than I do, um, you know, you know, being a voice sure. as you are, but like, you know, it's certainly, um, you know, I'll, my understanding is that a lot of the sort of like the resonance happens yeah. in the sinuses yeah. and the upper airways, right? So the quality of your voice can certainly be affected 
by nasal and sinus issues. Yeah. So sinuses are small spaces in the skull. You know, they're both up by the cheekbones, you know, sort of in the middle between the eyes and then in the, in the forehead. And, you know, if those are filled up, which we've all experienced when we've had, you know, upper respiratory tract infections that are filled right. up with mucus or inflammatory tissue, you know, you don't get the proper resonance that you normally would get. Yeah. Voice. And then also your nose, when that's blocked off, that is part of that whole upper resonance chamber. And if it's, you know, if your nose is inflamed due to allergies, the tissue generally tends to get swollen and there's not much as much space as you normally have. Yeah, that's right on with how I think about it too. And I think it reflects in the way that singers talk about how, you know, when they're having bad allergies, they can sing, but it feels kind of miserable to do so because they, they just feel so blocked in the face. But the somehow it seems like the vocal folds in the larynx function reasonably well, even if it doesn't sort of feel the same. So it, just think that's sort of interesting. Whereas people who have a cold that, you know, sort of settles in the larynx, you really on some level cannot actually, you know, kind of phonate. So that being said, you know, I think one of the most common clusters of questions we get or the reason that people come in is how do I, how do I deal with this? So I suppose I'd be interested in your take on when people, singers are kind of suffering with allergies. How do you choose, like, do you go to an ENT first? Should you just go see an allergist, CCP? How do you kind of advise people on who to see first? Oh, I mean, I think either could be a good choice. I mean, you know, you get just, um, yeah, either one, I think either one would be a good choice. Um, yeah. Then generally, you know, the, the, when I see patients with like airborne environmental allergies, I, I try to keep it really simple into like, sort of like, broad strokes, what are the treatment options, right? So, you know, step one, if you have an allergen that is easy to avoid, you should try to avoid it, right? So if you are only allergic to cats and yet we're thinking about adopting a cat, maybe just don't do it, <laughs> right? Common sense, but, yes. But if it's, you know, pollens, mold, dust, you're gonna have a really hard time yeah. avoiding those allergens. Unless you're like, I hate springtime, it's glorious outside. I'm just going to stay inside here and leave yeah. my air conditioner on. So, um, <clears throat> avoidance step one, if possible, very difficult to do. Yeah. Step two, medications. Yeah. Depending on the symptoms, eye drops, nose sprays, oral antihistamines, none of these are going to make you less allergic in the long run, but are safe, effective. There's really good over the counter options these days. There are some prescription only options, you know, and then there's, some sort of immunomodulation, like allergy shots, classic, yeah. sublingual immunotherapy. These are ways to try to decrease your sensitivity to these allergens. Cool. However, there it's a bit of a laborious process, probably only a small fraction of patients who benefit from that treatment actually do it because it's such a hassle. Yeah. So let's actually do a little bit of a deeper dive into each of those things that you just mentioned. So how do you decide who you test? Like, so I guess what I'll say is, when patients who are suffering from allergies come to see me, I, I think there probably are ENTs who do testing, but I, I don't. So my kind of habit is like impaired treatment, right? I usually like start some combination of an oral antihistamine and a nasal spray. But do you think we should test people? How do you decide on when to test someone? So usually after I have that conversation about sort of the broad strokes of treatment, yeah, um, I say, as far as testing goes, because I know you're, if you're here at an allergist, you expect to be tested yeah. properly, right? Right. Um, 
So as far as testing goes, um, say these are the main reasons one would test for allergies at this time. You know, curiosity, right? I just want to know what I'm allergic to. I want to track pollen counts online. I want to, you know, if my birch, if I'm only allergic to birch during the two weeks that birch is really bad, I'm going to stay inside. Sure. Okay. So curiosity, potentially allergen avoidance, which I just sort of covered a little bit, you know, in terms of curiosity of staying inside when your pollens are out, you know, or, um, you know, again, if you're allergic to cats, not getting a cat. Um, and to know what to put in allergy shots. Those are the three main reasons. Okay. As far as medication management goes, if you're sneezy for two weeks in the spring, it's not going to make a difference in terms of what medications (laughs) I choose to know that, that it's birch versus oak. Yeah. So, and I do tell patients this and a lot of them say, they're like, I'm like, are you interested in just having a treatment plan? We could do that without testing. And some of them say yes. And some of them are really interested in testing. Okay. It really varies from the patient to patient. Tell me a little bit about testing. How, how do you do it? What do you think kind of the best way to test is? Right. So for, um, this kind of allergy, you know, there's two main modalities. There's skin testing, which is the famous quote unquote scratch testing. We don't actually scratch people. We haven't (laughs) that passed by the wayside a long time with it, but there is a small poke. Uh, It's called actually technically prick puncture testing. Um, we also call it percutaneous testing, and this involves putting a small drop of diluted allergen on the skin, you know, putting a, a, a needle, maybe a millimeter into the skin, no blood or anything, but just to introduce that allergen to the top layer of the skin to see if your immune system might be looking for it. And if it is looking for it, you usually get like a little bit of a welt, like a, like a hive that lasts for maybe usually about 20 minutes or so. Um, so that's skin testing. Um, the benefits of skin testing is that it's relatively immediate, um, pretty reliable. I'm sure you can get false positives, um, uh, downside, you know, potentially like a little bit itchy for a while. Um, then we have blood testing, which involves a blood draw, get the results in a day or two. Also pretty accurate. Used to be the skin, the blood testing wasn't as accurate as skin testing. Now I think it's pretty much just as good. Maybe certain types of skin testing, which is maybe a little bit technical to get into where we inject a little bit under the skin might be more sensitive, but also more prone to false positives. I see. So kind of interchange. I mean, like yeah, either one fine. I usually talk with patients. I say, which one do you prefer? I would defer. I would go to skin test or sorry, go to blood testing. If a patient had been say on antihistamines recently, which would affect the accuracy of skin testing results, because the whole point of antihistamines is to suppress histamine sensitivity. Yeah. And we're looking for a little bit of histamine response. Okay. These allergens. Okay. Got it. Okay. So that's great information about kind of testing and why we do it. So then you had mentioned immunomodulation and I'd love to just hear more about that. Cause I think people kind of have this conception about it, but maybe don't know what it is and why you choose to do it. And then and let's talk about medications. But let, okay. let's to talk about immunomodulation. Okay, so you know the most common form of immunomodulation is allergy shots. There's also called um, um, subcutaneous immunotherapy or SCIT, also called specific immunotherapy. It's lots of different names, but allergy shots is the common yeah. way it's referred to. Um, and this sort of therapy has been around for over a hundred years. Surprisingly, um, they were like mm-hmm. you know desensitizing, you know grass allergic milkmaids back in like the late 18th century or, or sorry, early 19th century. Wow. Um, yeah, but, um, so pretty effective, uh, in terms of the overall, um, numbers of patients that respond, you know, we'll see symptom improvement 
in patients who have allergies probably north of 80% of the time. The average amount of improvement, you know, we're looking in probably, you know, some, hoping for like something like 60 something percent, maybe 70% improvement. So not perfect. So if you're allergic to cats and you do allergy shots for cats, you know, you'd probably be able to be around cats, maybe not even take any medication, but you probably won't be able to like rub a cat on your face. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. Noted. <laughs> without, without having some symptoms. Cats are being, you know, they're kind of one of the more potent airborne allergens. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. So, um, definitely. Um, so that's allergy shots. There's also sublingual immunotherapy, which has been around for a shorter amount of time, maybe uh, 40 years. It's a predominant form of immunotherapy in Europe in the very limited FDA approved forms of sublingual immunotherapy here in the United States, really just for ragweed, grass and dust. Yeah. And this is the idea is you give yourself a small amount of allergen under the tongue. It's taken up by your immune system. You're, there are a variety of immune mechanisms take place, but basically induces tolerance by exposure. Same as allergy shots. Allergy shots are probably more efficient in introducing that allergen into the immune system and inducing tolerance. Um, most studies uh, show more benefit with the shot. Mm -hmm. That being said, shots are more of an inconvenient. They need to be really administered in a doctor's office because yeah. they are giving you something that you're yeah. allergic to. Yeah. And therefore there's a possibility of having an allergic reaction. Yeah. So you really want to have that in a place where we can take care of it. Um, and sublingual immunotherapy, you're less likely to have a systemic allergic reaction, but and most patients who do sublingual immunotherapy also, you know, have to have an EpiPen on hand, et cetera. It's rare for them to need it, but they, that's just part of the protocol. What's kind of a typical course for um, this kind of thing? How well, long? both for sublingual and um, for shots, you know, you're looking at sort of like three to five years of therapy. Wow. So, yeah. So, like weekly or bi weekly shots for several months to get built up to a good level because we don't start people with a very high dose of whatever they're allergic to because they would definitely have anaphylaxis. Yeah. So, we yeah. just get a little bit more and a little bit more each time. Then when you get up to a good dose, you get a shot every four to six weeks. That's called maintenance. That's usually not such a big deal for people because they just have to get maybe 10 shots a year. Okay. And that usually the longer you do it, the longer it will last. Interesting. Um, and that's the reason, one of the big reasons why people choose to do allergy shots is like they do three to five years and then six, 10, 20 years of significantly reduced symptoms. Plus as people get older, their allergies tend to abate somewhat. Mm -hmm. For most people. So, you know, if you hit that, you know, you have decreased symptoms when you're young and then you're getting older and maybe the symptoms are coming back a little bit, but your allergies are chilling out anyway, hopefully you don't need to do another course of allergy shots. Got it's it. rare to do two courses in a lifetime. Okay. That's super helpful. I, I didn't actually do that long. Yeah, it's pretty long. Um, there's always interest in doing allergy shots with different formulations of the shots, like attaching make bacterial um, DNA repeats to it to try to make it more effective, injecting it intralymphatically. They always seem to be like on the cusp of making it a lot easier and then it never gets FDA approval. Interesting. Okay. So it's still pretty laborious at this point. Yeah. I actually learned a ton just, just then. Okay. So I'd love to just spend some time kind of finally getting your thoughts about kind of the most common medications that we use. So oral antihistamines perhaps, and then like nasal treatments. Sure. Well, and I mean, you know, this, you know, as well or better well, than I, I do, but know, actually, I, I, please tell me. So, um, this is my take. Okay. Yeah. So what most people will start with is what's called a second generation antihistamines. Yeah. So first generation antihistamines would be like Benadryl, yeah. shorter acting, 
tend to be sedating in a you know significant percentage of patients that take them. Second generation antihistamines tend to be longer acting, less sedating. Um, three main ones that are the most commonly used: Claritin, yep, um, also called Loratadine. Everything has to have two names in this, and just to make it extra confusing, right. but there's a the trade name and then the generic name. Um, tends to be the weakest, in my opinion, for most people. Some people really love it though. Um, then there's Allegra or Fexafenidine, which is kind of medium potency for most people. The, the good thing about Allegra or Fexafenidine is it's in studies, it really doesn't seem to cross the blood brain barrier. It really has, should have no sedation at any dose. Um, so that's the good thing about it. It does tend to be a little bit more expensive. And then there's Zyrtec or Cetirazine, yeah. um, which tends to be the strongest for most people, but it also has the highest percentage of patients who feel sedated on it. Interesting. Peer reviewed literature says maybe 10%. I, in my experience, more than 10% of patients do feel sleepy on it. Um, Interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so those are the three main ones. And there are like, then there's like, you know, so it's like this form of like purified Zyrtec called Zizol or Levocetirazine, yeah. a little bit more effective, but not really enough to justify the cost. Interesting. People, singers often talk about like drying with antihistamines. Yeah. A any thoughts on that? You know, I've had that claimed about all the antihistamines. Yeah. Some people will just experiment and be like, oh, you know, I really find Claritin to be the least drying. In my, um, not having written a paper on this or written a paper on this, respect personal experience, it's, it's all over the map. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Like some people will just swear up and down and Allegra is the most drying and the next person will be like, Allegra, totally drying. Absolutely. Yeah. I 100% agree. And you can't, you can't like figure out why, you know, yeah. it's, it's, so it's worth experimenting. Okay. But these are safe medications that are available over the counter. The generics are very reasonably priced. You know, you can get 365 dollars <laughs> on Amazon. Okay, cool. So, so then do you, if people are having a lot of nose symptoms, do you, do you typically then also recommend a nasal spray? Talk to me about kind of steroids versus nasal antihistamines combination. What's, yeah. what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, Claritin's, you know, all those antihistamines are sort of like very basic and will provide symptom release to, to patients who are like really probably not that sensitive, mm -hmm. you know, as the only therapy that they're taking, if we're called monotherapy, right? So, but. Oftentimes patients will be like, this isn't cutting it. I'm not getting the symptom relief I need, um, you know, to do my job or, you know, to perform for your patients. Yeah. Um, so, you know, adding a nasal spray can be quite effective if patients can tolerate nasal sprays. People tend to not like doing them as much as antihistamines, but I mean, you think about it, like you take an antihistamine, it goes throughout your whole body. Totally. Your big toe gets just as much <laughs> Claritin as your nose does. Yet where's the problem? Your nose. Right. Right. So right. if you can put a medication in your nose where the problem is yeah. and take good levels of medication in your nose, you can probably address the issues better. So, yeah. um, so they've got the two main categories there in terms of nasal sprays. We've got, you know, nasal steroids and we've got nasal antihistamines. So nasal steroids, you know, pretty good across the board for symptom reduction, congestion, sneeze, drip, et cetera. All those symptoms will be somewhat reduced with nasal steroids. Problem is that they take a little while to work. You did. Right? My experience sort of like two to three days to sort of kick in sort of maximum efficacy of about a week, but I'd be, willing, I'd be happy to hear your um, take on that. Um, they all work about the same. There's, I don't know, maybe half a dozen available at the counter. There's a few that are reserved for prescription only. I'm not really sure why. Yeah. There are some fancy delivery systems. Like, yeah. 
um, X hands, which you may have heard of, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah, which is just delivering flonase in a better way that gets deeper into right. the nose, but it's good for some patients. Yeah. Um, and then we've got the nasal antihistamines, which, you know, work really great on itch, drip, sneeze, um, work quick, do tend to have more taste issues. Yeah. Um, or the medical term dysgusia, right? Um, so the people do not like having that trip down the back of their throat. So they have to give them some special instructions to try to minimize yep. that symptom because a lot of people experience that. Um, and you can use the nasal antihistamines regularly, or you can just use it here and there when you're having symptoms. And you can use both. Yeah. And there is actually a medication that combines them called Dimesta, yeah. the trade name, of yeah. course. Yeah. It's very difficult to get insurance to approve. Totally. So usually we just end up, if, if a patient's really bad, we think they need the benefit of both yeah. of these medications, we just prescribe them separately yeah. and be like, you're going to be on a lot of nasal sprays. Yes. I, I mean, that's exactly the way I think about nasal steroid sprays too. Um, and, and I agree two to three days and ends up to a week to kind of like maximize effect. Yeah. But, um, yeah, perfect. All right. Well, then I'm so glad we're on this. It's <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's good to have good colleagues who are aligned for medications. I'd say like there's maybe just one other medication that's worth mentioning that there's a medication called Montelukast, um, which is used for allergies and asthma. It's prescription only. It's, um, Singular, yeah. 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 Singular is a trade name. And it's, um, it can be worth a try on some patients. It's really hit and miss. Like it's maybe 50 to 60% of patients respond, but people who do yeah. like it quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, yeah. And don't really complain of drawing too much in my experience. Yeah. So that no, would be another glad you mentioned that. And there are another bunch of other medications probably going into too much detail to get into the, you know, yeah, maybe basochromalin and those kind of things. But, um, uh, yeah, so the, 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 I think that covers the main points with the cool. Well, listen, I think my default when people come in and they're suffering with allergies is to have them see an allergist because I just think sort of the same way you see a laryngologist when there's a problem with the vocal cords, you sure. know, the allergies so forth. So thanks for taking the time to just sort of lay out some of the basics for our crew. A pleasure. And I'm um, happy to see any other patients you want to send my way. Perfect. You've been listening to Quok Talks. You can find more episodes anywhere you get your podcasts or by following us at our Instagram home where the handle is at Quok underscore talks. That's at K-W-A-K underscore T-A-L-K-S or at my website, paulequok.com. Original music and sound design for this podcast is by Max Silverman. Our logo is designed by Designs by Tomiko. Thanks for listening. It's a joy to share these conversations with you.